The following program is for informational purposes only. Do not make any investment without speaking to a licensed financial advisor. It's time for Americans to grow up and become financially responsible. Let's talk about something important. If you're in it for the money, that's not a bad thing. Do you realize how much money he just saved us? This is The Financial Physician with Lou Scatigna. The Financial Physician. It's the fastest hour in Money Talk Radio. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates. This is financial advice you can take to the bank. He's your money man. Show me the money. Your source for straightforward, no-nonsense financial advice. Bring me your money questions because I'm here to help. And now, here he is, the financial physician, America's money doctor, Lou Scatigna. Greetings, my friends. How are you? And welcome to this week's The Financial Physician Podcast. I'm Lou Scatigna, certified financial planner. We get together once a week to talk money, markets, politics, and anything that affects your life. We have our weekly show uploaded by early Sunday morning. Usually it's up by 7. I promise I'll have it up by 9 if I'm running late or I'm doing some last-minute additions to the program. But it's always up early Sunday morning. And most of you do listen to the show on Sunday. And I do really appreciate that. I appreciate you listening anytime. Uh, And that's the whole idea of a podcast. You're not pigeonholed into a certain time, a certain station. You can listen to the program uh, as you see fit. Thanks so much for joining us. Let's start off the show talking about a subject that is the most controversial financial subject that I've dealt with in my 40-year career in financial services. And it is the most misunderstood financial product out there. And that's reverse mortgages. Now, most people don't fully understand how a reverse mortgage works, what it is, the positives and negatives of it. I've seen people's lives change dramatically with a reverse mortgage. I've seen other people get a reverse mortgage. It was the most stupid thing they can do. And there's a lot of misconceptions out there. And a lot of people listen to their friends, their neighbors, their families, and most people aren't fully informed on how it works. A reverse mortgage is a way for older homeowners to borrow the equity in their house. Uh, And for many uh, uh, senior homeowners right now, they're struggling to get by. They may not have a lot in savings and investments, but they do have a home home that they own that may have a lot of equity in it, may not have any mortgage at all, or may have a relatively small mortgage on it. Well, the reverse mortgage is a way for seniors to get money out of their house, to stay in their house if that's what they want to do, and pay off additional debt, lower their budgets, uh, invest money that they didn't have before. It is a remarkable, remarkable financial instrument if used correctly. Uh, and again, it's it's not right for everybody. And I'll talk in this program here. We're going to talk about the pros and cons, who it works best for, and who it doesn't work for. The first rule is that the youngest spouse or the youngest person in the house, if you're single, has to be at least sixty-two. Right, to get a reverse mortgage. You can't apply for a reverse mortgage if you're not at least 62. And the way a reverse mortgage works is you're taking money out of your house, just like a regular mortgage. You're borrowing against your home. Now, the amount you can get out of the home is determined by how much equity you have in a house, how much the house is worth, and your age. 
And one good thing about a reverse mortgage, there's really no credit qualifications. There's minimal credit qualifications, which I'll talk about in a second. Uh, but pretty much, you can have bad credit rating. really doesn't matter because the loan is being secured by your home. Now, a lot of naysayers on reverse mortgages say, well, you're using up your house equity. Well, if you're using up your house equity, it's because you've exhausted all your savings, all your investments, and you have debt that you want to get out from under. And I'm going to give you some examples, life-changing examples of how a reverse mortgage could be wonderful for people in the right situation. And the first thing we have to keep in mind is that you don't go for a reverse mortgage until you're exhausted everything else. You spent your savings, you spent your, um, your uh, investments, and now you have nowhere to turn. And you don't want to sell your house. You like your house. You like your neighborhood. You like your neighbors. And this is where you want to stay. And you could borrow that equity out of your home. Now, some people say, well, you know, if you get a home uh, reverse mortgage, it can limit your options down the road. That's true. But right now you're in dire straits and you have nowhere to turn. And you're house rich, you're cash flow poor, or you have a lot of debt. And we're going to talk about how a reverse mortgage can make debt payments go away magically in a just incredible way. And I've used them many times in my practice uh, when necessary to use. So to, to qualify for the most common reverse mortgages, you must be 62 or older. Again, older you are, the more money you can get out of the house. And why is that? Well, because the bank is going to get it back. You have to live in the property, and that you have to live in a property, a property at least six months of the year. It's got to be your main residence. You must have paid off a substantial portion of your mortgage because you can't get a home equity loan if you don't have a whole lot of equity in the house. I keep saying home equity loan. I mean reverse mortgage uh, if you don't live in a house. And if you have a significant mortgage, you can't borrow enough on a reverse mortgage to pay it off. And that's the thing. You can't have two mortgages. Once you have a reverse mortgage, that's the only mortgage you can have. Now, you have to have enough income or enough funds put aside to pay the expenses related to keeping the property, like taxes, insurance, repairs, homeowners association fees, that kind of stuff. You still have to have enough money to pay for that because the reverse mortgage won't pay it. Well, as a matter of fact, I shouldn't say that because sometimes reverse mortgages are structured in a way that they do pay the real estate taxes and the homeowner's fee. I have a client who's, who has a reverse mortgage that does that. The reverse mortgage company had put some funds aside, and now the homeowner doesn't pay for anything. And it works out well for this specific homeowner. But most reverse mortgages, you still pay those fees yourself. You have to participate in a counseling session. What is that? Well, the Department of Urban Development uh, has a list of counselor-approved people that you could talk to. And they're going to go over all the pros and cons of reverse mortgages. You have to go through that counseling session. It's usually done on the phone, and it's usually about 20 minutes. Uh, The average cost is about $125. But you can't get the reverse mortgage unless you sit through that session. And it's good for you to do it because you're going to get a good education on the pros and cons of getting a reverse mortgage. Another thing about a reverse mortgage is it's tax-free. The money you get out of reverse mortgage, you do not have to pay taxes on because you're borrowing your own money. You're borrowing the equity in your house. It won't affect Social Security. It won't affect Medicare benefits. If you're in um, some benefit programs, like in New Jersey, we have the Property Tax Reimbursement Program for seniors. That's income limited. 
that doesn't affect that. Or if you're on PAD, the, the pharmaceutical assistance program here in New Jersey, this is not considered income. How do you get a reverse mortgage? I mean, how is it given to you? How do you get the funds? Well, there's a different, three different ways you could do it. A lump sum, uh, monthly payments, or a credit line that you just tap into when you need it. And what's good about, let's say, the, the monthly income is that it's tax-free and it doesn't affect any of these benefit programs. And you could pretty much determine what that monthly income is. Now, there's a limit to how much you could borrow the balance on this reverse mortgage. And that's determined when it's underwritten. They'll do an appraisal on your house, they'll look at your age, and they'll figure out how much they're willing to lend you. And it doesn't have to be all at once. Maybe it's a credit line. So so say you have a $400,000 house, you're 75 years old, maybe your credit line is $250,000. Now, once you hit that, that, that level, you can't take any more money out. But that level goes up every year due to inflation. So the amount that you could take up does go up. Now, why would you take a reverse mortgage? As I said earlier, you've run out of money and you can't pay your bills. Or you have a traditional mortgage, or you have credit card debt, or you want to pay off a car, or you have medical debt that's strangling you, or a combination of all of these. And I'm going to give you an example of a real life example of a client of mine that had all of these things. Uh, One thing you can't have is a debt to the IRS. They will not give you a reverse mortgage if you have an IRS debt. So now with a regular mortgage, you borrow a lump sum, you buy the house, and you make payments over the course of 15 years or 30 years, and the payment is part principal and part interest. Now in the beginning of the loan, you're paying mostly interest. At the end of the loan, you're paying mostly principal. So your equity in a house grows because the the loan balance is going down, and theoretically your house value is going up, and you're building equity. Now, with a reverse mortgage, you borrow money from the lender based on the equity that you have in the home. And what what is equity? Well, equity is if I sold my house today and paid off any liens against it, how much do I have in my hand? That's equity. And uh, the lender, like I said, may send you funds in a lump sum or in a credit line or in a monthly payment or a combination of those. And that means your balance goes up over time because you make no payments on a reverse mortgage. And that's the most attractive thing about a reverse mortgage. Where else can you get a loan from somebody? And they say, hey, Lou, here's $200,000. Don't make a payment to me. Don't pay me back until you die. That sounds like a pretty good deal for me. Especially if I have a lot of other debt that I have to pay every single month. Well, that's a great thing. And it's the only loan that I've ever known of that you don't have to make any payments on it until you die. Now, once I'm dead, I don't care anymore. Now, yes, if inheritance is important to you, you're going to be eating up some of your your, your kids' inheritance. But the reason why you're doing this is because you're desperate in the first place. So it doesn't matter if you're using up your kids' inheritance. If your kids' inheritance was in an IRA account, but you had to take more out every month to pay your bills, well, there's not going to be that much left for them. And it's not about them. It's about you. 
So let's compare reverse mortgages to traditional mortgages. All right, age requirement. There's no age requirement for a traditional mortgage. I mean, you have to be 18 years old or you have to have a co-signer. Uh, but with a reverse, reverse mortgage, you have to be 62 or older. Uh, what do you borrow? Usually uh, with a traditional mortgage, a lump sum to buy your house. With reverse mortgages, an amount based on a percentage of your equity and how you want to take it. How do the payments work? Well, you pay the lender each month on a traditional mortgage. Part of it is principal, part of it is interest. And with a reverse mortgage, as I just said, you don't have to make a payment until you die. Uh, with a traditional mortgage, uh, the balance goes down over time. And with a reverse mortgage, the balance goes up over time. It's just a mirror image. That's what the word reverse means, right? It's the, the opposite of a traditional mortgage. And this makes people crazy sometimes. Some of my clients, you know, you get a statement every month on your reverse mortgage and you see the balance going up. And the more you borrow, the more the balance is, the quicker it goes up because the interest is more on a bigger balance, of course. And that makes people nervous. But the point is, is that if you're going to stay in that house till you die, uh, the, what do you care? Why do you care? Um, and as I said before, you know, people say, well, I'm using up my kid's inheritance. Well, you would use it up anyway if it was in a savings account, if you needed it. Now, one of the things I always advise people on a reverse mortgage is I want to know that you're going to stay in that house at least five years and the longer, the better. Why? Because one of the negatives of reverse mortgages is the initial initial cost to set them up. Number one, you have origination fees with the with the broker that sells the mortgage to you and you have uh, insurance that you have to buy from the government. And what is the insurance? The insurance ensures that you can never owe more on the loan than the home sells for. Now, here's an example that happened to my family. Uh, my father and mother, on my advice, my parents didn't have a whole lot of money at all, didn't have really any money. Um, I had them get a reverse mortgage about 15, 20 years ago. And what they were doing is they were taking $400 a month uh, and my dad would use $200 for his car payment. He always had a lease car, so he always wanted a new car every few years. And he paid $200 a month on my, my mom's car. And he did that for a very, very long time. So when my father died four years ago, he owed $115,000 on his reverse mortgage. Uh, but his you know, senior home uh, was only valued at $94,000. So he owed more on the house than a house sold for. Now, does that mean that his family's liable for that money or his estate is liable for that money? No, because he purchased uh, insurance with the FHA uh, to insure that mortgage. Now, the bank isn't going to lose any money. The bank's going to sell it for whatever it sells for, and they'll get the rest of the, the fair market value from the government, and you pay for that insurance. And that's what makes part of the, the initiation uh, fees so high. And how much could it be? Uh, you know, you borrow $300,000, it could be anywhere between $15,000 and $22,000. Now, do you have to write a check at closing with that money? No. It goes right into the balance right at the beginning of the loan. So it doesn't come out of your pocket, doesn't affect you any. And just realize, if you stay in that home till you die, husband and wife, and I always say this, is this your last home? Is this where you plan on being, except for a nursing home at the end of your life? 
And if they say, yes, this is our home, I don't care about a reverse mortgage. I don't care about the initiation fees. I don't care about the interest rate. Well, maybe your kids care or your heirs care, but you don't care because it doesn't affect you. So uh, what do you do? How do you... um, how do you go about getting a reverse mortgage? Well, there's a lot of mortgage brokers. You see the, the commercials on TV with Tom Selleck and, and other washed up actors. I wouldn't say Tom Selleck is washed up, but uh, uh, a, lot, a lot of these washed up actors uh, do these reverse mortgage commercials. It makes you feel confident and comfortable about it. First thing you want to do is, is take your time when you're looking for a reverse mortgage. You know, shop around, go to a couple of different mortgage companies and... Uh, because the fees could vary, the interest rates can vary, the terms can vary from company to company. They don't usually vary that much, but they could. So maybe you want to shop two or three different mortgage companies. Uh, take your time, talk with your family, take the counseling session, which you have to do anyway, uh, and then make a decision. Now, you got to be real careful because a lot of these um, reverse mortgage brokers are actually, uh, are also, I should say, uh, security salespeople and insurance salespeople. So they're going to try to get you to take the lump sum and invest it in their annuities or their mutual funds or uh, one of their investment products. That's a significant conflict of interest. Be, be careful. And if you feel high pressure to do something, walk away. You don't want to do that. Uh, the process is they're going to uh, do an appraisal on your house. They're going to put together a proposal. And then uh, you're going to make a decision whether or not you want to go forward with it. Now, I tell everybody, on almost every financial matter, go see a certified financial planner before you commit to it. Now, I work with my clients. Listeners to this program have come to me. And uh, in my office building where my AFM Investments is based, uh, upstairs we have a mortgage broker that I'm very friendly with. So I'm able to go up there with them, ask all the right questions, walk them through the process, Make sure they understand everything. Uh, And that's very convenient for our clients because they know that I'm with them the entire way. But uh, see a certified financial planner. Let him go over all the numbers. And he may see something in that that you don't. I think that's very important. I think too few people do that. And it's very important to to do that. Now, let's look at real life numbers here. Say you have a traditional mortgage. And you owe, uh, the house is worth 450000 and your traditional mortgage, uh, you owe 200000 on it. Your principal, your principal and interest payment is 1300 a month. Well, you borrow 200000 on a reverse mortgage. You pay off the traditional mortgage, and your payment went from 1300 a month to zero. Now, for many seniors, that $1,300 a month change in their budget is life-changing. And in the clients that I bring for reverse mortgage under this scenario, it is life-changing. So say they have a credit line of $250,000. They use $200,000 to pay off the traditional mortgage because you can only have one mortgage. You can't have two. You pay $200,000 of the original mortgage, and now you have $50,000 available for future use to take as you see fit. So a few years later, you need a new roof. Take the money you need for a new roof. You could do anything you want with the proceeds of a reverse mortgage. You could take it all, go down to Atlantic City and gamble it all. Nobody cares what you do with it. It's totally up to you. 
So in this example here, a person now made $1,300 a month go away. They have $50,000 available to them that they didn't have before. Tell me that's not life-changing for that person. Now, I'm going to give you a real-life example of one of my clients. She had an IRA with me. She was taking $3,000 a month out of it for many years, and she exhausted it. It went to zero. That was the only savings she had. And I saw it coming a couple of months in advance. I, you know, We knew that she was getting down towards uh, the end of the IRA account. So I had her come in and sit down with me. And I did some investigation into what her situation is going to be like after she runs out of this money. And it turns out it was going to be desperate and dire. Because when I looked at uh, her financial makeup, this is what I found. First of all, this woman was a spendthrift, meaning that she uh, uh, she um, spent money like crazy. She was one of these shopaholics on, uh, on QVC Network. And she always used her credit cards and she bought things she didn't want. She was a pack rat. And that's why she had $45,000 in credit card debt. $15,000 car loan she had. She had a $45,000 traditional mortgage. So what were the payments on all this stuff? Well, with the $45,000 in credit card debt, she was paying cl- close to $2,000 a month. And that was the minimum payments. That's without even tackling hardly any principal. And the problem was continuing to grow. The $15,000 car loan, she was paying $350 a month. Still had almost three years left on it. More than that, actually. Uh, the $45,000 uh, traditional mortgage she had on the house, she was paying eight fifty dollars a month in principal and interest. Uh, now, we don't take the real estate taxes because that's not going to go away. You know, So we're just going to look at the principal and interest on the original mortgage. So let's add that up. She had $3,200 a month in debt service. And that's what she was using the $3,000 a month she was taking from her IRA account. Social Security was paying for her food and her, her insurance and all of those stuff. But she was counting on that 3000 a month from the IRA account to pay this debt service. And that was going to go away in a few months. So this is what we did. We, uh, we took a reverse mortgage for $200,000. And we paid off all the debt. We paid off the 45000 in credit cards. We paid off the $15,000 car loan. We paid off the 45000 traditional mortgage. So we borrowed 105000 out of a roughly $200,000 credit line and made all those debt payments go away. It saved her $3,200 a month. So she went from being desperate and dire and being forced to sell her house to pay off these debts. And when I explained to her reverse mortgage can keep her in her house and get all these debts to go away, it was a magic wand. It was a miracle for her. So that's what I say about reverse mortgages. For the right people, it's fantastic. If you have savings, you have investments, you have enough income, don't go get a reverse mortgage. It's silly. If you think you're going to sell the house in a couple of years, don't get a reverse mortgage because you're going to pay all these upfront costs and then have to pay them back in just a couple of years. It makes the loan incredibly expensive. But if you're uh, under the gun financially, you have a lot of debt, traditional mortgage payments, medical debt, card debt, credit card debt, Or you just want to use some of the money that's in your house to live a good life. Maybe you wanted to travel to Europe and stuff like that, but you can't do it 
under your current budget. That allows you to do it. And I would recommend that for that kind of person. But if somebody comes to me and they have, you know, 50000 in their IRA, 100000 in the bank, no, we're not going to even talk reverse mortgage because reverse mortgage is always the last thing we look at. We exhaust all other options first and then look into the reverse mortgage. And for a lot of people who know they don't have a whole lot of savings, it's very comforting to them to know that when they run out of money, there is an option for them. And it's called the reverse mortgage. So reverse mortgages, not for everybody. For the right people, it is a life changer. For the wrong people, it's a stupid financial move. That's why it's so important to talk to a financial planner before going forward with a reverse mortgage. Let's take a quick break. My name's Lou Scatigna. You're listening to The Financial Physician. Don't go away. Are you currently retired or planning to retire in the next five years? Hey, Lou Scatigna here, certified financial planner, personal finance author, president of AFM Investments. Why not join me for a comprehensive financial review at my downtown Tom's River office? Banks are paying virtually nothing, and the stock market has become a risky casino. But there are ways to achieve reasonable returns without taking on big risks. Let me show you how. During our meeting, I will determine your net worth, find ways to maximize your income, and minimize your taxes. I'll review your estate plan and discuss strategies to protect your estate from nursing home costs. Managing your finances is more complicated than ever, but you don't have to go it alone. So make your no-obligation appointment today by calling 732-905-8100. That's 732-905-8100. Registered Investment Advisory Services through Fortitude Advisory Group. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, a family-owned and operated premier septic installation and repair company with more than a decade of experience in the septic services. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer provides full-service maintenance and cleaning services, pumping septic tanks, repairing broken sewer lines, cleaning of grease tanks for restaurants, as well as real estate septic inspections, repairs, and installations. Phone 732-600-8721 or go to jerseyshoreseptic.com to learn more. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, top quality work at the most affordable rates. All right, we at The Financial Physician love your emails. Well, I guess we, we is me. <laughs> I love your emails. Uh, there's nobody but me. Uh just me and you here on The Financial Position. I do love your emails. Uh, many of you have such nice, com- uh, kind statements about the program. Really do appreciate that. But more importantly, if I could help you in any way, you have a personal finance question or an issue that you're dealing with, please feel free to email me, email me at lou at thefinancialphysician.com, lou at thefinancialphysician.com. You never bother me. Any, the, anybody who's going to invest time to listen to this program, uh, you have access to me. Either through email or you can call my office, and uh, I I talk to all our listeners all the time. So uh, no cost, no charge, no obligation for anything. Uh, I just love to help people, especially um, the listeners to the Financial Physician Program. So thanks so much for uh, joining us. Thanks for your emails, Lou at the Financial Physician uh, dot com. Thanks for sharing the podcast. We're growing each and every week. Uh, I'm real happy about that. That means people enjoy the program enough to tell other people about it. And that's the only way the podcast grows because uh, we're not on the radio anymore. People don't just discover the podcast. They have to be told about it. And uh, thankfully, you're doing that. And I appreciate it as uh, the listenership is going up each and every week. Thank you so much. 
Now, uh, it was announced this week, a uh, revision to the GDP for the third quarter. The way it works is they, they come out with a number, and then they'll revise it, I think, three times, and they get to the final GDP number, gross domestic product, which is the, the broad measure of the economy. And when it first came out uh, in early October, it was 4.88% annual growth in the third quarter, uh, which stunned a lot of people, including me, until I thought it through and realized that no numbers coming out of the government, no economic numbers, the CPI, inflation, the job numbers, GDP. For the next year, everything's going to be rosy. No matter how bad it is, you're going to see it's always going to surprise to the upside. And then months later, they're going to revise right, revise it down. But between now and the election, trust me, the economy is going to look so good, according to the numbers. Bidenomics is going to be you know, working and doing well for middle class families. And uh, what they're doing is gaslighting you. They're lying to you. And government has always done this. I've said it on this program all the time. It doesn't matter who the president is. They try to make the numbers look better than they are. It's politically expedient to do so, especially in a presidential election year. Uh, but Americans know better. You can't tell uh, the average American nowadays that, oh, the economy is doing great. It's growing at a 5% annual rate. Don't you feel it? No, I don't feel it. <laughs> I go to the grocery store and I get half a cart for $200. No, I'm not feeling Bidenomics working for me. But they're going to come out and announce it. So what did they do? They revised it up. Uh, from 4.88 to 5.16. Um, so uh, everything's great. Everything's great in the economy. All right, so the economy's growing over 5% annually. How do you jive this headline? Say goodbye to the middle class. Half of all American workers made less than $40,847 last year. If you are wondering why so many Americans are stressed about their finances these days, just look at these numbers. The Social Security Administration just released national wage statistics for 2022, and the figures that they have given us do not paint a pretty picture at all. In particular, we should all be deeply alarmed that the median wage earner brought home just 40847 last year. That breaks down to about 3400 a month, and that's before taxes. Now, needless to say, you can't live a middle-class lifestyle in America on $3,400 a month before taxes. So what is it? Let's be, let's be nice and say it's right around $3,000 a month you're taking home. Well, housing costs alone are going to eat up three-quarters of that. And then you have to pay everything else, including food and energy and insurance and car payments and credit card payments. Uh, and that's why we're seeing so many people work multiple jobs. And in most households, more than one person has to work. And in many cases, you know, more than one person has to have multiple jobs. And it's really, really depressing a lot of American families. And during the inflation crisis that we've been living through, and again, the... Um, the Biden administration will tell you that inflation is going down, which is total lie. I'll play, I'll play a clip in a second. But Americans are being squeezed like, like never before. Right now, it's almost $2,000 on average to rent a home or an apartment. 
So the average worker, or more than half anyway, uh, have nothing left for anything else. And we've seen everything soar in price the past few years. And those who make the least amount of money are hit the hardest, obviously. I mean, yeah, you know, we're all paying higher prices, but, you know, you make 300000 a year, uh, I'm not going to cry for you. But if you're making 40000 a year, that's a different story. And people are not seeing their wages go up anywhere near the rate of inflation. And now we're seeing a credit crunch developing where it's getting harder and harder to get, get credit. People are trying to increase their credit card limits. They're being told no. Uh, they're having trouble getting money out of their house because lending standards have been tightened. And many people now are finding out that their credit rating is dropping because they just accumulated too much debt. But Bidenomics is working. It's really great. It's really doing well. Here's another um, article that puts into question how great the economy is doing, how great Bidenomics is. 25% of Americans are still paying off 2022's holiday debt. And I talked about this last week. You can't go into super, um, super debt. You can't take on incredible amounts of debt during the holidays if you can't afford to do so. And nobody could afford to do so because if you could afford to do so, you'd be, you'd be paying cash for things. And not using your credit cards. This was a wallet, uh, wallet Hub survey. And they talked to 250 respondents. So this is what they came out with. Um, skipping presents. More than one in three Americans are forgoing gifts this year due to inflation. Nearly one in four Americans still have holiday debt from last year. Nearly one in five people will apply for a new credit card to help with holiday spending. Nearly half of Americans say their charitable giving is affected by inflation. And that's the thing, too. Charities are really hurting now. They've had the one-two punch of losing the deductibility of charitable contributions due to the increase in the standard deduction. Nobody's, very few people are itemizing anymore. So you don't have the incentive to give to charities and, and get that tax deduction. And then people are so squeezed now that they could barely afford to eat and drive their cars that they um, are foregoing charitable contributions. And that's sad. That's really sad. 28% of people will spend less than last year on their holiday shopping. 23% of Americans are planning to make a holiday purchase based on social media. I don't know why that's in there, why that's important. And, and this year, taking on more debt is more of a problem because of interest rates being so high. You know, the mean interest rate now on, on credit cards um, is almost 21%. So if you're in a hole, stop digging it and stop borrowing more money. Look, if you have to borrow more money on your credit card because you have to buy groceries and you're out of money at the end of the month, that's one thing. But don't be wasting money that you don't have using credit cards for the holidays. People are just going to have to understand that times are tough for you and get a small, thoughtful gift that doesn't cost a lot of money and use cash whenever you can. And, you know, people are still paying off the credit card debt from last year. That's insane. 
And the financial crisis that kicked off in March with the banks, if you remember, in the spring we had uh, bank failures, and the concern of the Federal Reserve is we're going to have more. So they instituted what they call their bank term funding program, the BTFP. They like to use an acronyms for, um, for everything. Uh, so what this program did is it allowed banks who have bonds that are underwater, some of them trading at 50, 50 cents on the dollar, not to have to sell them and incur the loss to pay depositors. So what the Fed did is they said that they would take those bonds and uh, give you or lend you uh, the full value of those bonds. And then you can buy those bonds back later on. So therefore, you won't incur the losses. Uh, the bank, uh, the Federal Reserve will hold the losses and the bank will be able to go on as a going function, um, functioning bank. Now, that facility, if you want to call it that, uh, has been rising and rising and rising. And in November alone, over $5 billion was borrowed using this facility. Now, that means that there's still major problems in the banking system. And how much have banks borrowed since March from this facility? Uh, $114 billion. That's over a tenth of a trillion dollars. And every month, more and more is being borrowed in the banking system. So sooner or later, I mean, we're going to see, uh, you know, the banking crisis reignite. And my guess is it's going to involve some bigger banks than the ones that failed previously. Uh, but what happens when the Federal Reserve fails? I mean, think of all the bonds that they have that are underwater. You remember quantitative easing? They were buying up all these bonds at very low interest rates. And now interest rates have gone up. The Fed's got hundreds of billions of dollars in losses. And, and that's, that's a concern. People think, well, a central bank can't, can't fail, can it? Well, sure it can. Unless it wants to cause hyperinflation in the country, which they probably would do. And uh, so we're still seeing banks in trouble. They're still doing things that indicate that the storm has not passed. And the fact that some troubled banks are, are, are still tapping into the bailout program eight months after the crisis doesn't necessarily mean the banking system is on the verge of collapse, but, but it, it, it looks like there's still problems out there. And there's still problems in the banking system that's just bubbling under the surface. And uh, what will happen going forward? I don't know. But all I know, I've told you this many times, I want to keep my life savings in any bank. Another indication that, that banks are in trouble. 64 U.S. bank branches filed to shut down in a single week. We're seeing this all over America. I'm seeing it here. Big banks like PNC Bank, that's where I bank. I don't have a lot of money there, but that's where I pay my bills. And J.P. Morgan Chase are, are, are closing branch offices in multiple states. And it's a troubling, troubling pattern that we've seen for a couple of years now. And PNC Bank is closing the most branches, and that's where I do business. And now it's become very inconvenient. 
they used to be a, a PNC branch here in Barnegat, where I live. Uh, it's not there anymore. They shut it. And now they've shut other, uh, other branches close to me. So if I want to deposit a check, I have to actually drive 10 miles from my office to go to a main branch of PNC in Tom's River just to deposit a check. So are they doing that because they're in financial trouble and they're trying to save money? I don't know. But in one week, you see 64 branches uh, closing or at least being filed to close. Uh, that's telling you something. Now, one factor involved is uh, the rise of digital banking. And that accelerated when we were going through the pandemic where people learned how to uh, do their banking online pay their bills and all that kind of stuff. And that's been growing and growing and growing. Also, older Americans are dying off. The older Americans that were not technologically savvy and or trustworthy uh, or trusted the, the digital system to do their banking. Uh, they're dying off and, and, and in replacing them is uh, uh, older Americans who've had internet and email and, and are, are comfortable with it. But the shutdown of branches makes life very inconvenient, especially for customers in small towns. And because of, of closures of the branches, many towns have become what they call bank deserts, where the nearest bank is at least 10 miles away, which is what I'm dealing with now. And I think I'm seriously thinking about changing my bank to a bank that has a, a branch in my hometown. Or closer to my office. Just for convenience. Then they, they may shut. Who knows? And a lot of things happen when bank branches close. And, and if it's a small community, it really has adverse effects. Uh, small business loans and lending activity in the area declines. Because, you know, you can't just walk in a bank, sit down with a banker and talk about getting a loan. And now you have a lot of empty real estate. What's going to happen with these branches that close down? And uh, what's going to happen when um, we go to digital currencies? There'll be no reason to have a bank branch anywhere. So uh, bank banks are still uh, very, very questionable to me. Not just me, other people uh, that are smart and follow this stuff. And if you're smart, you would not have a lot of money in any bank at this time. And I've told you what the alternatives are. The alternatives are uh, U.S. Treasury money market funds that you can get in any, any brokerage uh, firm. Uh, you can get at any mutual fund company. All they are is a mutual fund that has treasury bills in it. There's zero risk, at least now anyway. Uh, and never fluctuates. And right now, paying close to 5%. I bet your bank's not paying you that. And one thing about a U.S. Treasury money market, it can't close on you. It can't fail. And uh, that's why you have to get out of the system. And if you're not out of the system, well, you're lucky that you still have time. But I'm not sure how much time you do have. So we're watching the banks very, very closely, and uh, 
PNC is leading the way. Uh, in June, it shut down 47 branches, 29 in August. Uh, and now uh, they're continuing to do so. And they're not the only ones. Uh, and that is not a good side for banking. Two octogenarians, um, those are people who are 100 years old. For those of you who live in Loma Linda, remember, remember Rush used to always do that? Rush Limbaugh used to always say that when he uh, knew a lot of liberals were stupid, uh, he would clarify things like that to them. God, I miss that guy. He was, he was my idol. As a radio talk show host, uh, uh, small as I was, I did look up to, to Rush from the beginning when I first started doing radio 25 years ago. Uh, Rush was out there, and he was my hero then. Uh, I just wish I would have got a chance to meet him. Uh, but I learned a lot about radio listening to Rush, and I listened to him every day. Anyway, two octogenarians um, of note passed away this week. Uh, Henry Kissinger, who uh, was 100 years old, uh, died this week. We'll talk about him in the second hour. And uh, Charlie Munger. Charlie Munger was less known partner of Warren Buffett at Berkshire Hathaway. Him and uh, uh, Warren were partners for 50 years. And he died at uh, 99. Uh, January 1st, he was going to be 100. So it was interesting that these 200-year-old uh, notable men died this week. But let's talk about Charlie Munger. Warren Buffett said that Berkshire Hathaway could not have been built to its present status without Charlie's inspiration. Uh, and, and, and Charlie was a funny guy. Uh, he would go on financial talk shows, and, and, and he had these sayings and quips that, that, that made people laugh. And he wasn't a, afraid to use a salty tongue. Now, when he died, he was worth $2.3 billion. And all of that was Berkshire Hathaway stock. So Berkshire Hathaway is the vehicle that Warren Buffett got rich on, but so did Munger. Nowhere near to the extent uh, of Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett's estimated to be worth around $100 billion. And Munger was worth $2.3 billion. And he was the vice chairman of, of Berkshire Hathaway. Those of you who don't know Ber Berkshire Hathaway... Uh, all the company does is buy other companies and buy stock in other companies. It's an investment firm. And you could buy stock. You always could buy stock in Berkshire Hathaway. Now, there's two classes of stock. There's class A and there's class B. And the reason why they issued class B, God, it must be 25, 30 years ago, um, was that the class A stock was unaffordable for the average investor. Uh, how unaffordable? Well, today... Berkshire Hathaway's Class A shares, one share, is $545,000. Actually, $545,912. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway has been a pretty good investment for a lot of people over the years. So they issued a Class B share. Well, how much is the Class B share today? It's $360. Uh, relatively affordable. You could buy 10 shares right, for $3,600. Um, you could buy 100 shares for $36,000 and still participate. And people wanted to invest in mainly Warren Buffett. Uh, but Charlie Munger was uh, the quiet guy that, you know, kind of was in the background. And, and Warren Buffett got all the accolades because he was the chairman of Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, but uh, Charlie Munger was a fun, funny guy. He was a witty guy. 
and he would uh, he would do like when they had their shareholder meeting, you know, Buffett would be up there, Mungo would be sitting next to him, and they'd have a conversation about what's going on in the economy and their investments and everything else. Uh, and Munger would just rip off one funny thing after the other. And he'd have the um, the audience in stitches. And he'd, he'd do it on TV, too. He'd be on CNBC, and he wasn't afraid to uh, use salty language on, on the air where they'd beep him out. So let's listen to some of... Um, Charlie Munger's quotes about investing and about, about life in general. I don't think there are good arguments against my position. I think the people that oppose my position are idiots. <laughs> and, and, well, you don't want to be like the motion picture executive in California. And they said the funeral was so large because everybody wanted to make sure he was dead. So, no, I'm... I'm optimistic about life. If I can be optimistic when I'm nearly dead, surely the rest of you can handle a little inflation. <laughs> people don't seem to get that point. you have any idea why, Charlie? <laughs> Warren, if people weren't so often wrong, we wouldn't be so rich. Yeah. It was investment banker-aided fraud. Yeah. Not exactly novel. <laughs> yeah, I think you would understand any presentation using the word EBITDA, every time you saw that word, you just substituted the phrase earnings. Yeah, it's not that much fun to uh, buy a business where you really hope this sucker liquidates before it goes broke. I like cryptocurrencies a lot less than you do. And I think the people who are professional traders that go into trading cryptocurrencies, it's just disgusting. It's like... Somebody else is trading turds, and you decide I can't be left out. You are mixing something which is wretched and irrational and has bad consequences with something that uh, has very good consequences. But you know, if you mix raisins with turds, they're still turds. Um. <laughs> That's why they have me write the annual report. But <laughs> And yet it's perfectly obvious, at least to me, that to say that derivative accounting in America is a sewer is an insult to sewage. <laughs> but competency is a, relative, is a relative concept. And what a lot of us need, including the one speaking, what I needed to get ahead was to compete against idiots. And luckily there's a large supply. And sure, there are a lot of things in life way more important than wealth. All that said... Some people do get confused. I play golf with a man, he says, what good is health? You can't buy money with it. A director getting $150,000 a year from a company who needs it is not an independent director. They're looking for chihuahuas and, 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 and not great names. And, yeah. Yeah. and I hope I'm not insulting any of my friends that are on comp committees. <laughs> You're insulting the dogs. Yeah. <laughs> Of course, that's the other advice. The best way to get what you want in life is to, to deserve what you want. How could it be otherwise? It's not crazy enough so that the world is looking for a lot of undeserving people to reward. Great stuff from uh, Mr. Charlie Munger, uh, Warren Buffett's partner. Really funny. Uh, but uh, Buffett got all the accolades. Uh, Munger was in the background uh, making a great living. You know, these two guys, Buffett and... Uh, and uh, Charlie Munger, for 25 years, you know what their salary has been? 
$100,000. They never raised their salaries. Both Buffett and Munger lived in the same small, modest home for 60 years. Never upgraded. Now, I have a problem with that. I really do. I mean, you're worth $2 billion, Charlie. Upgrade your house. At, at least to a million-dollar house. I don't know. $5 million house. I mean, if you saw Warren Buffett's house, you, you wouldn't believe it. You would think this guy is just a middle-class Joe just trying to get by. But these guys were, it, it was all a game to these guys. They're not enjoying their money. Warren Buffett's worth $100 billion. Now, granted, he doesn't need more than $100,000 a salary because his wealth is in the stock. But he doesn't live rich. And he believed that um, that uh, rich people shouldn't live the way they do. And and I guess I understand where they're coming from, but there's, there's a fine line here. Let's listen to a, a few more of um, Charlie Munger's quips and wit. And the people who invented this crypto crapo, sometimes I call it crypto crapo and sometimes I call it, well, crypto sh**. It's just ridiculous that anybody would buy this stuff. It, is, it isn't even slightly stupid. It's massively stupid. Well, I can't give you a formulaic approach because I don't use one. If you want a formula, you should go back to graduate school. They'll, they'll give you lots of formulas that won't work. As Samuel Johnson said famously, I can give you an argument, but I can't give you an understanding. Warren reminds me, once I asked a man who just left a large investment bank, and I said, how does your firm make its money? He said, off the top, off the bottom, off both sides and in the middle. <laughs> the general system for money management requires people to pretend that they can do something that they can't do and to pretend to like it when they really don't. I think that's a terrible way to spend your life, but it's very well paid. <laughs> Those of you who are about to enter business school or who are there, I recommend you learn to do it our way, but at least until you're out of school, you have to pretend to do it their way. <laughs> I've listened to so many nonsensical cost of capital discussions that I've never heard an intelligent one. Well, I would rather throw a viper down my shirt front than hire a compensation consultant. Um, Charlie's big on lowering expectations. Absolutely. That's the way I got married. <laughs> my wife lowered her exp expectations. Charlie Munger, legendary investor, partner of Warren Buffett and funny guy, dead at 99. The Biden administration and the left in this country have been pushing EVs, electronic, electric vehicles, down our throats for the last few years, even longer. But the bottom line is Americans don't want it. They don't want these cars. They don't want the inconvenience of having to have a charging station, having to wait 30, 40 minutes, an hour to charge your battery, uh, if you could find a charging station. So 3,900 auto dealers wrote a letter to President Biden last week urging his administration to reconsider the pace of EV mandates, citing a severe decline in demand for these vehicles. You can't force somebody to buy something they don't want. 
So in their letter, they, they write, quote, currently there are many excellent battery electric vehicles available for consumers to purchase. These vehicles are ideal for many people, and we believe their appeal will grow over time. The reality, however, is that electric vehicle demand today is not keeping up with the large influx of EVs arriving at our dealerships prompted by the current regulations. EVs are stacking up on our lots, the dealers said. So uh, people aren't buying them. And they're stacking up on their lots, and uh, they don't want to sell them. You got new auto loans now hovering around 8% if you have good credit. The price of these vehicles are about $15,000 more than a, a, a gas car. So the interest rate at 8% on a higher balance means that uh, Americans would have to want to pay $1,000 a month for an EV. And uh, it's an affordability issue. Also, you got to realize that an electronic vehicle weighs approximately 1,000 pounds more than a, a vehicle that's gas-powered the same size. Think about the risk to our infrastructure. How about a bridge where you have all these cars going over it and they're 1,000 pounds heavier than, than traditional vehicles? I mean, these bridges just weren't built for that kind of weight. There's lots of issues with it. So uh, the dealers go on to say, Mr. President, it's time to tap the brakes on the unrealistic government electrical vehicle mandate. Allow time for the battery technology to advance. Allow time to make EVs more affordable. Allow time to develop domestic sources for the minerals to make batteries. Allow time for the charging infrastructure to be built and prove reliable. And most of all, allow time for the American consumer to get comfortable with the technology and make a choice to buy an electric vehicle. So uh, we're seeing this whole green movement collapsing this year. Uh, we're seeing uh, companies that um, uh, that produce uh, solar panels, uh, hydrogen uh, companies, clean energy industry. We're seeing these stocks crashing this year because nobody wants Nobody wants their stuff, what they're selling. And you got Governor Murphy here in New Jersey mandating, uh, dictating uh, that you can't buy a gas-powered vehicle in New Jersey after 2035. And I mentioned this last week. How does as a politician come off mandating something that doesn't take effect for 10 years? He's not even going to be in office. He may not even be alive at the time. Uh, it's just outrageous, and people don't want these vehicles. Something's going to have to give here, and uh, I think uh, you can't force a consumer to buy something they don't want. I, I guess they don't want us to have cars in general. They'd rather us all take public transportation. Another thing, too, with these EVs is that you have to dispose of the batteries. How do you do that? And you know somewhere in the life of that car, that battery is going to die. You know what it costs to replace a battery in a car? You know how big these batteries are? It costs between fifteen dollars and $20,000 to replace the battery. So who's going to buy a used electric vehicle when you know that the battery may go soon and it'll cost you fifteen dollars to $25,000? It's insane. And the way to, how do you dispose of these batteries? Not to mention it costs more in fossil fuels to create the electric that powers these cars. It's just so stupid. But government uh, excels in stupidity. 
Speaking of stupidity, now I mentioned earlier that they're trying to tell you that inflation is going down when maybe the rate of increase is going down, but prices aren't coming down. But our presidential spokeswoman, KJP, uh, wants to gaslight you into thinking otherwise. Almost three years in office, inflation is up over 17 percent since President Biden came here. Inflation inflation is moderating because of the actions that this this president has taken. Because prices are going up slower, they're still high. It's going down. The prices are going down. If you look at where, for example, for a perfect example, I mean, I just talked about last week how turkey prices, the cost for turkeys is going down, the cost for eggs is going down because of the actions that were taken. I just talked about supply chain and how that affects the economy. And that's because of the president's action that he's taken. And if you think about gas prices, it's down by $1.70 since its peak, since its peak because of the actions that this president has taken. So we understand that people are still not feeling it. We get that. But does it mean that we're not going to continue to talk about it? Does it mean that the president at 2 o'clock is not going to talk about how he's lowering costs? This holiday season, families are seeing lower prices on everyday items from gas to groceries. As holiday holiday shopping starts, shelves are stocked and prices, prices for toys, TVs, and used vehicles are all down from last year. And we just saw record Black Friday sales. This woman thinks that Americans are stupid. And many of them are, let's be honest. The average citizen out there doesn't know what's going on. But uh, we're we're all not stupid. And the people who watch presidential press briefings are not stupid people. And she lies right to her face. And and, and Ducey called her out on it. Everything is up tremendously since Biden became president. It's, 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 it's like saying that, uh, okay, inflation went up 200% uh, last year, but it's down 30% this year, so I come out and take credit for it. It's insane. It's insane. We still have, according to the government, a 3.5% inflation rate. It's really 10% plus, if you figure it out correctly. Um, but they want you to believe that inflation is actually deflation. That prices are going down. That's deflation when prices go down. But when you have 3.5% inflation, prices are going up. Just not 9% or 9.7%, which was the official gauge in July of 2022. Uh, But she comes out there. She opens up her book. She knows she's going to be asked a hard question, and she just lies about it. And thinking that everybody in that room is stupid. And... uh, You don't get follow-up from the rest of the press corps about that. But we should. It's just unbelievable. All right, so here we go again. It's uh, just before an election year. And sure enough, a new virus has shown up in China and now in America. The Daily Mail reported that an extremely high number of children in Ohio are being diagnosed with a strain of pneumonia dubbed white lung syndrome. Ohio is the first state to report an outbreak like the one we're seeing in China. Eastern Massachusetts Massachusetts physicians are also seeing a whole lot of this white lung syndrome. So what is this? This is a pneumonia-like sickness. 
Uh, it's spreading through the schools in China. Uh, it mainly affects children. The average age is around eight years old. So the last time they were coming for the elderly and um, the sick uh, that were most vulnerable to COVID, uh, now they're coming after our children. Uh, it, it just doesn't end. Uh, and uh, again, China's being mysterious about it. They're not reporting the truth as usual. And um, this is a weird kind of pneumonia because it, um, you don't cough. There's a lack of normal respiratory distress, like coughing. And it's baffled medical professionals. And now they're labeling this an undiagnosed pneumonia. And the spread of this white lung syndrome uh, is raising serious concerns. It, it, it parallels the start of COVID-19 pandemic. Remember, it started in December of 2019, right before 2020, the election year. And, and here we go with this one. Coming out in December, just in front of 2024, an election year. How convenient. How long till it's going to be before they're going to start shutting down schools again, uh, telling everybody they can't vote in person, mail-in ballots are necessary? It just never ends. And again, the Chinese government is engaging in a cover-up, just like they did when uh, the mysterious pneumonia came out in 2020. Also, nobody's taking the COVID vaccine anymore, so it's, uh, it's hurting Pfizer and Moderna's profits. So uh, I'm sure they have a vaccine ready to go for whatever this is. And um, the Center for Disease Control claims it's nothing out of the ordinary and uh, not to worry about. It. We'll see. We'll see. I'm sure you remember they kept telling us that uh, the COVID-19 vaccine was safe and effective. It was neither safe nor effective as people with uh, the vaccine were getting COVID all over the place. I was talking to my doctor this week, and he said, don't take the vaccine. Now, he was pushing a vaccine on me a couple of years ago, um, and he asked me, any changes in your vaccines? I said, no, I'm not taking the vaccine. He goes, good, don't take it. He goes, it's, a, it's just a waste. He said, it doesn't work, and it's causing people all kinds of problems, and, and people are getting COVID anyway. Yeah, now, now, look at this. Look at this headline. Uh, a look at unprecedented surges in cardiac arrest cases in Victoria, Australia. In the past two years, there have been a notable surge in the number of cardiac arrest cases in Victoria, Australia. From 2021 to 2022, cases increased by 5.8% compared to the previous year, reaching a, a historical high. And these numbers have sparked public concerns about the potential side effect of vaccines. No kidding. According to the annual report from the Victorian Ambulance Cardiac Arrest Registry, 6,934 cases were recorded from 2020 to 2021, uh, and uh, it continues to rise. Now, there's a number of studies out there that we know that indicate that myocarditis is the primary cause of sudden and unexpected death in children or young adults, and now they're linking myocarditis and periocarditis to the vaccine. And meanwhile, young people don't even aren't even really affected by COVID-19 in a bad way. And now we have to worry about uh, these young people uh, dying of heart attacks. How do you trust anything the government tells you? Another thing the government was telling us, remember, you have to wear masks, two masks, three masks, don't wear a mask, yes, wear a mask. Meanwhile, 
The virus is so much smaller than the holes in a mask, but wear it anyway because it's just another element of control. It's like uh, putting up a chain link fence to stop mosquitoes. That's exactly what it is. So how about this headline? Higher incidence of COVID-19 found among consistent mask wearers, peer-reviewed study shows. People who wore protective masks were found to be more likely to contract COVID-19 infection than those who didn't, according to a recent Norwegian study. The peer-reviewed study, published in the journal Epidemiology and Infection on November 13th, analyzed mask use among 3,209 individuals from Norway. Researchers followed them for 17 days and then asked the participants about their use of masks. The team found that there was a higher incidence of testing positive for COVID-19 among people who use masks more frequently. Among individuals who never, almost never wore masks, 8.6% tested positive. That rose to 15% among participants who sometimes use masks and to uh, and to 15.1% among those who almost always or always wore them. So uh, there you go. Uh, another untruth told to us by the medical establishment in the government and Dr. Fauci, who should be in jail for genocide. Uh, boy, he's, he, he kind of disappeared off the face of the map, huh? Because he knows he was wrong at everything. He knows that he's responsible for COVID-19 because he was funding the Wuhan lab. Unbelievable. And he's, he's nice and retired with his, uh, you know, four or $500,000 pension. And I'm sure that Pfizer uh, and Moderna will offer him all kinds of positions. Probably on a board of directors. It's really unbelievable. So, uh, here we got another infection coming around. They're going to try to lock us down again. I know they are. It's election year. They're going to try to do it again. It worked very well last time. They were able to steal the election last time with mail-in ballots. And they're going to try to do it again. They're going to do anything they have to do to stop Trump. It doesn't matter how many people die because of it. It doesn't matter how it will affect school children if they shut down the schools again. Uh, you know, this used to be kind of covert when they were trying to uh, push their agenda on us, the globalists. Now it's right in your face. They don't really care. It's right in your face. What are you going to do about it? Um, now, how do you go years and years and years without pandemics? And all of a sudden, you know, every, what, every two or three years, we're going to get a new pandemic until they kill us all off. Scary stuff. Scary stuff. So this week, um, Henry Kissinger died. He was 100 years old, and uh, a lot of people call him a statesman, but not everybody. He was the only person ever to be White House National Security Advisor and Secretary of State at the same time. So he had total control over U.S. foreign policy. That's rarely been, e- rarely been equaled besides a president, for somebody who wasn't a president. And he was responsible for the post-World War II order in the world. He's the one who was credited with um, engineering the opening of relations between China and the United States uh, when President Nixon um, was president in the early 70s. But not everybody uh, liked him. 
and think he was a good guy. Some people are saying he was a, a Illuminati, a globalist, whatever you want to call him. And two of his biggest critics, uh, Christopher Hitchens and um, William Sawcross, have branded Kissinger as a war criminal. Journalist uh, Seymour Hirsch in his book, uh, The Price of Power, said Kissinger and Nixon were basically two of a kind. They, re- they remained blind to the human cost of their actions. The dead and maimed in Vietnam and Cambodia, as in Chile, Bangladesh, Biafra, and the Middle East, seem not to count as the president and his national security advisor battled the Soviet Union. Their misconceptions, their political enemies, and each other. And he still was on the world stage, stage up till the end. Uh, in July, he went to China and met with Jing Chaoping uh, at 100 years old. So like him or hate him, the guy certainly was a, a big figure in U.S. Uh, foreign policy, uh, certainly back in the 70s. But he continued to be an advisor uh, to presidents, uh, both Democrat and Republican, almost all the way to the end. Dr. Henry Kissinger, dead at 100 Listeners to this program know I love Senator John Kennedy, uh, Republican from Louisiana. I, I consider him a national treasure. The guy is so witty, so funny, and he skewers his guests in a very respectful way. Uh, he seems um, like somebody you'd love to have a beer with, just a fun guy. Uh, but when you're in the hot seat and you're being uh, you're you're te- you're giving testimony to the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, and he's asking you questions. Uh, he does it in such a nice way, uh, but he makes you look like a fool. And he exposes people for their ignorance about a subject. You know, a lot of people, you know, they're, they're advocates for this or that. And then he starts asking them questions and uh, they become quite uncomfortable and they don't know how to answer them. And by doing so, he makes them look like fools. So uh, this week, uh, I think it was Tuesday, a doctor from an Ivy League school, I don't know what it was. Her name is Megan Rainey. And she was uh, sitting before the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee. And she's a a practicing emergency physician. And she's currently serving as the dean of the Yale School of Public Health. She has demanded a public health approach to stop the nation's so-called gun violence crisis. Now, of course, leftists in this country have been treating uh, guns as a public health issue for years. It's It's a backdoor way to try to disarm you. And under the current regime, um, your average Trump supporter is deemed mentally ill and not qualified to own a gun. So during the questioning, uh, Senator Kennedy um, exposed Rainey's complete ignorance regarding gun deaths and left her, left her confused with a, a funny uh, pointed question at the end. So you got to listen to this. It's it's just uh, classic uh, Senator Kennedy. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, Dr. Rainey. Um, welcome. First, uh, you you are an ER doc. Is that right? Okay. Correct. And I understand you've been on television a lot? A fair amount. Um, And I understand you you built a a home television studio. Is that right? That's a bit of an exaggeration. I had a laptop on a 
uh, on a stool. <laughs> your, your husband didn't build you a home studio? He did not build me a home studio, no. Okay. Um, let me ask you this. Why do you think that Chicago has become America's largest outdoor shooting range? Do you think it's because of Chicago citizens uh, who have no criminal record, but, but who have a, a awfully a gun in their home for protection or perhaps for hunting? Or do you think it's because of a finite group of criminals who have rap sheets as long as King Kong's arm? So Mississippi, Louisiana, and Missouri actually have higher firearm death rates. Um, Obviously, there's certain... What about Chicago? So I don't live in Chicago. It's not my primary area of research. You don't have an opinion on that? I think there's easy access to firearms combined with environmental conditions, uh, lack of great education. There have actually been studies showing that when you green vacant lots and repair abandoned buildings in urban neighborhoods... You see decreases in gunshots, in violence, as well as in stress and depression in the neighborhoods around them. No disrespect, Doc, but that sounds a lot like word salad to me. See, the left in this country, they always justify criminals with guns. Oh, it's their environment, it's the educational system, it's this, it's that. But law-abiding citizens that have guns, uh, that's the problem, Right. But the criminals who actually have the guns illegally and aren't afraid to use them on the streets, uh, they're given a pass because it's uh, uh, they're underprivileged. Uh, and it, you know, if we if we say it's in the black communities now, we're racist and white supremacists and all that. Only the white people got to have the guns. That's the way they turn the argument around. Let's get back to uh, Senator Kennedy. Let me ask you this: um, in in September of um, this year, our New Mexico governor issued a public health emergency order. And, and she, she suspended the right to bear arms in Albuquerque and the surrounding county. Do you support that? I, I do not. What I do support is the work that New Mexico yeah, has done. Do you with... support that? No. You don't? Okay. You, you don't think gangs should be uh, prosecuted for having gu- illegal guns? I'm neither a lawyer nor a prosecutor, and I don't. That's not my area of research. But yet, you want to take guns away? I've never from, said that I want to from, take from guns from away. From law-abiding citizens. Mm. I, I think that you are saying something that I've not said in my written or oral testimony, sir. Okay. Um, you, you equated gun deaths to heart disease in your opening statement. Yes, sir. Which is a greater public health problem? Gun deaths or heart disease? So heart disease does kill more folks across the United States, largely in the about end of their life. About thousand? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gun deaths, about 50,000? Correct. Do you, do you support outlawing fried foods? I, I'm sorry. How does that relate to... Because fried foods contribute to heart disease, don't they? Again, I have not written or said that I support you're, outlawing. You're a physician, right? I am. Have I said that I support outlawing anything in my testimony today? Okay. <laughs> do, you, do you support outlawing fried foods? Now, if you saw the video, you saw her face. She, it was priceless. 
pretty funny guy. And uh, then he goes on to talk to another person that's on the panel there. And this guy, uh, his name is uh, Dr. Franklin Cozy Gay. And obviously this guy has been very, very soft on rapists and things like that. He believes that uh, they shouldn't be um, prosecuted for a life. That's just a mistake that she, she, you know, we should be forgiving of. And um, Senator Kennedy uh, called him out on it. Um, let me ask one more question. I'm sorry, I cannot see that far, doctor, on the very end. Cozy Gay, thank you. Yes, sir. You, you said, I wrote it down. You said that no one should be judged by the worst thing they have done in their lives. Correct. If one of these young doctors sitting behind you, God forbid, walks out on the streets of Washington, D.C., and is raped or sodomized, you don't think the rapist should be judged? I don't think it should be terminal. It shouldn't be for the rest of their lives. You think we should forgive them and not give them any punishment? I believe in you forgiveness. You think nobody's responsible for their actions? I believe in responsibility. I believe in forgiveness. Thank you, Mr. Wow. I wonder what this guy's feelings would be uh, if it was his wife that was viciously raped or his daughter. Would he feel the same way? I doubt it. As long as it's somebody else, you know, they're for the criminals. But it, once it touches their family, then they have a whole different attitude. And that's the way it works with these people. I could uh, listen to Senator Kennedy question witnesses all day long. Uh, quite a bit of entertainment there. <laughs> He's, again, a national treasure. Last week, uh, I brought to your attention that um, the head of Black Lives Matter of Rhode Island um, was leaning towards Trump. And this past week, uh, he came out and he endorsed Trump. His name is Mark Fisher, and he appeared on Fox and Friends on Tuesday to, to discuss why. Why he has chosen to support Trump over President Biden. And his response was pretty interesting. Class Matter, Rhode Island, Mark Fisher. Mark, thanks so much for joining the program. Um, you know, this is my favorite story of the day because it identifies with what I've seen in the barbershop. All the brothers, for some reason right now, are turning tides right now. And I, I just wonder, what is the big reason? I think personally, it's the duplicity of the Democrats, mm. the hypocrisy. Um, we're not stupid. The brothers are not stupid. We, we understand when someone's for us and when someone is not. And it's obvious that the Democratic Party is not for us. Yeah, I, I keep... Their, party, their, their, their policies actually strike at the heart of the black family and the nuclear family. Yeah, so, you know, you were part of Black Lives Matter. Uh, you founded it there. And now you're saying... You're, you're not saying the entire Republican Party. You're saying Donald Trump. So what is it about Donald Trump? Is it the economics... Uh, you noted the black family. What is it going to take for him to sure up this support amongst uh, black voters? Well, I, I just think that it's going to take information. A lot of people are misinformed. They don't really understand because they don't educate themselves on, on Donald Trump as a person and his history. Um, but if they do that, and it's going to take, you know, leaders, educated leaders getting the word out there. Um, I think that it, it'll happen on its own and it'll be organic because um 
personally, I love the man. I mean, how could you not like if, if a real man? Uh, how could you not relate to someone like that? <clears throat> yeah, he, he watches every morning, so I'm sure he's cheering a, a, as you're saying this. We looked at some of the polls for Trump over uh, over Biden in the battleground states. In 2020, it was eight percent. Now in 2023, he has 22%. And that's just not black men. So uh, election, the election is right around the corner. If you had the opportunity to talk to the former president, I'm sure he's watching right now. What would you tell him? Call me. I'm my cell phone, man. I'll stop for Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, uh, I- I'm fascinated by you. Wh- why did you end up leaving Black Lives Matter? Or are you still affiliated with it? No, 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 I'm still affiliated with it um, all day. It, because the thing about it is I'm, my message that I preach and, and, and that I tout is unity. It's a message of unity. It's unity-driven. I want to bring together all the marginalized groups from the, the margins and bring them to the center because we're stronger together as a, as a one nation, under, uh, indivisible under God. Mark Fisher, I think all Americans can go with a message of unity. We thank you so much for coming on the program. I hope you'll come back and check in with us. I appreciate you. Keep up the good work, Lawrence. You got it, brother. Sounds like a bright man, a clear-thinking person that realizes that the Democrats have done nothing for blacks except keep them in poverty, bondage. That's all they've done. And I think they're waking up. And I, I've been mentioning this to you for months now, is that the black vote is moving towards Trump. Now, it's not going to be the majority, but I think it was something like 8 or 10% in 2016. Uh, but right now, it looks like it may be 30 40%, uh, which is no way a Democrat could win an election without overwhelming black support. And the same is true of Hispanic Americans. They're moving towards Trump as well. So Joe Biden's in big trouble. I don't think, I could be wrong, I don't think they could produce enough fraud to turn this election right now. And I think they know it. They're panicking. Uh, It's no coincidence that Gavin Newsom was on Hannity this week uh, debating DeSantis. They're grooming him probably to step in at the convention or maybe prior to that. Maybe uh, Biden has a a fall or some health scare and he has to, due to health reasons, back out. Maybe it's the spring. Who knows? But I still don't believe they're going to run Biden out when they know he can't win. And that they can't cheat enough for him to win this time around. And if they keep him on the ballot, then they're confident they can cheat enough to overcome a landslide. That's a pretty scary thing, too. Anyway, uh, I thought that was an interesting story. Uh, Obviously, um, uh, Lawrence there did so as well uh, to see that a a head of a Black Lives Matter chapter uh, is endorsing Trump. Good for him. Maybe more will follow. Let's take a short break. My name is Lou Skatigna. You're listening to the Financial Physician Podcast. Don't go away. 
Do you have a home to sell? Do you need to buy a home? Or maybe you would like to consider a career in real estate? Well, you need to contact my brother, Mark Skatigna. He's the broker manager of Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty on Route 70 in Manchester. Mark has helped so many of my clients with either the sale of their home or to purchase a new home. All of them could not have been happier with his help. What about an exciting new career in real estate? Maybe you're finding you have more time on your hands than you would like to after retiring from your full-time job and are also looking to make some extra income. With flexible hours to still enjoy your free time and income that could be limitless, Mark could train you to be as successful as you would like to be and enjoy a rewarding career in real estate. For help with any of your real estate needs, as well as any information on a career in real estate, call my brother Mark Skatigna at Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty. His number is 732-657-6200. That's 732-657-6200. Mark Skatigna, Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty. Give him a call. You'll be happy you did. AFM Investments' Lou Skatigna has been serving Ocean County for over 35 years. AFM Investments brings a level of expertise, knowledge, and experience to the Jersey Shore that you would typically have to pursue with a premier investment firm on Wall Street. Whether you need income tax preparation or financial planning, he has the experience to help you with whatever your needs are. For more information, log on to AFMinvestments.net. Registered Investment Advisory Services through Fortitude Advisory Group. Welcome back to the Financial Physician Podcast. We uh, upload one two-hour program a week. It's uploaded Sunday morning, typically 7 a.m., unless I uh, need to tweak it a little bit, and then uh, no later than 9 a.m., but it's usually up by 7 a.m., and uh, you can listen to it anytime. You can go to thefinancialphysician.com and go to our podcast tab, and we'll bring you right over there. Or better yet, go to Podomatic when you're there at the Podomatic site, Follow the program. Uh, that way we will send you a link, email, right as soon as it's uploaded. And just click on it and bring it right to the podcast. That's uh, uh, thefinancialphysician.com. If you want to get in touch with me, my email is lou at thefinancialphysician.com. Simply lou at thefinancialphysician.com. Love your emails, and I promise to uh, uh, respond to each and every email. That's lou at the financialphysician.com. Now, earlier in the program, I was talking about gun control. They were talking about that at the Senate hearing, and uh, Senator Kennedy kind of ripped them apart a little bit about that. Uh, But having said that, this week, uh, this past Black Friday, we saw a record number of background checks as people were uh, out in force buying guns. Now, uh, I guess people feel that their, their, their rights are going to be taken away soon enough, and everybody wants to make sure they have their guns legally. And with all the crime that's going on, especially in the Democrat-run cities, you need to carry a gun to protect yourself. I think crime would go down in New York City, in Philadelphia, in Chicago, if all law-abiding people had legal uh, right to carry. I really do. Because criminals will think twice before they try to rob somebody, rape somebody. You know, they're, 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 they're real strong. They're real brave when they're the only one with the weapon. And you know that if they, they banned guns or they restricted them, only the criminals would have them. And the government. And you know what that means. From November 18th through Black Friday, a total of 680,671 background checks were run by the FBI. 
It's pretty amazing. Uh, people are out there buying guns. And this has been going on for a number of years now. We had uh, the BLM riots. We, we have the implosion of progressive cities. Uh, and uh, that's caused gun buying mania. People who never bought a gun before, never thought they'd have one, now are out there um, legally buying firearms. And that's why it's going to be pretty hard for the left in this country to be successful in their revolution. Because they're not going to succeed in taking our guns away. You want to talk about a civil war? You want to talk about a messy situation? Yeah, knock on the door and try to take somebody's guns away. Uh, we'll see how many people die before they stop that. And I wonder how many Second Amendment loving, law abiding Americans who are using buy now, pay later services to fund their gun and their ammunition purchases. That's one thing that I advocate as a financial advisor. Put that on a credit card if you have to. I have no problem with that. And try to pay it down as soon as you can, of course. Now, last week uh, in Ireland, uh, a migrant went on a stabbing spree in Dublin and uh, stabbed a bunch of people, including, I think, three children. And uh, the usual placid Irish people uh, rioted in the streets. They're fed up with these migrants that have come into Ireland. Uh, They're living on the dole, almost all of them. And they're committing violence against Irish citizens. And they've had it. I mean, you think it's bad here. Europe has been overrun by African migrants, mainly. In, in, in every, every country. Uh, in Paris, there's places that are just no-go. You don't go there. They have their own. They don't assimilate. They don't learn the language. They just move to the country, uh, file for benefits, never work. Uh, and then uh, they attack their hosts. They rape. They riot. And government is not responsive to this. And you would think that the, the, the Irish government, given how upset their people are and given the violence that happened, would be trying to address it. But no, that's not what they're doing. What they're doing is they're attacking anybody who speaks up about it. Colin McGregor, the UFC fighter, he was talking about this migrant problem, and they're going after him. And anybody who online says anything about the migrant crisis or does not tow the left liberal government narrative, they're going after you. And they have a new law that's coming in place early January, uh, early 2024, that makes it a crime for hate speech on any platform. Now, the question is, who defines hate speech? To the left, hate speech is anything that they don't agree with. So listen to this government. I don't know who this person is. She's a government minister. Uh, and in coming, instead of coming out and addressing the problem of migrants in Ireland and the need to fix the problem or at least stop the flow, she's going after the Irish people. 
the, the government is addressing the extremist content online like hate speech and incitement to violence and Kumashunaman is Ireland's new online safety and media regulator and will also be joint regulator along with the European Commission for the EU Digital Services Act. My department has ongoing engagement with Ancomishun and I, having met them two weeks ago, met with Ancomishun again yesterday for an update on last week's events and they informed me that they had engaged immediately with the large platforms and with the Gardaí and the European Commission and that the platforms had activated their instant response plans and their engagement is continuing. Ancomishun is calling for those who see hate speech or other illegal content online to report it to the platforms or to Angarda Síochána. This is important, but even more so important um, in next year. So, Because once Ancomishun is fully operational next year, people will be able to report to them directly if they think a platform has ignored or wrongly rejected their complaint. And these reports can then be used by Ancomishun Aman to decide where to focus their oversight and investigations and ultimately their enforcement action. Finally, on Commission's first online safety code, as provided for under the Online Safety and Media Regulation Act, will be adopted in early 2024. A draft code will be published very shortly for stakeholder consultation, and this will hold the video sharing platforms accountable for how they protect their users online and will deal with extremist content like hate speech and incitement to violence. This is a new era in which the regulators and the people they serve will be empowered to make the online world safer for all. Total madness. Absolute total madness. And it's all over the world right now. It's not just a one spot. It's in the United States. It's in England. It's in Italy. It's, it's all over. In France. Who are these people? Where have they come from? These crazies. These woke people. That you can't call out migrants that commit crimes. It's just unbelievable. It's like we're living in Alice in Wonderland or something, or the Twilight Zone. Really, the Twilight Zone, that's what I think. It's insane. Now, in Tucker Carlson's podcast, uh, which he has more people watch his podcast uh, videos than he did on Fox, it's just amazing. He had Steve Bannon on, and they were talking about this Irish situation and uh, and the stabbings that are going on. And, and, and Steve Bannon says, it's coming here in scale. To the United States, you're going to see more and more of that. So it seems like Ireland's, a, of course, a small country, an island uh, in Western Europe, but it seems like this is kind of a, a, almost a metaphor for what's happening across the West. What do you make of the rioting there and the government's response to it? Well, look, you've been to Hungary. You know, Viktor Orban has led this fight for years and um, has tried to get his country, the sovereignty of it, to stay away from what's happening in Germany and places like Ireland. Ireland's probably one of the worst, if not the worst, because the political class has totally sold out the people. You know, they've had, I think, 125,000 immigrants in the last year. That That is the same equivalent if all of Joe Biden's 9 million illegal alien invaders here in our country all came within one year. That's, that's, what, that's the impact it's had on Ireland. And they're all on the public dole. There's been 100,000 Ukrainians in what, the 18 months or 20 months since the war started, 100,000 Ukrainians all on the public dole, all pay for uh, out of the Irish budget. Now, some of that money is given by the EU, but the Irish politicians are by far the worst that are bought off uh, by the EU. They're the biggest globalists. They've sold out the sovereignty of, of the Irish. And you're seeing a natural blowback, and you're really seeing it among working class people in the cities, Irish nationals, Irish citizens, 
whose family have been there for generations and generations and generations and have nothing to show for it, and also in the rural communities. So Ireland is a powder keg. And I think what you saw the other day in the response by the Garda, the response by the authorities was immediately to go after Conor McGregor and other folks who were saying, hey, we need to address this. We need to, your, your, your proclamations are no longer good enough. We need to see a plan of action because there's been enough of these, um, these immigrants' attacks on, on citizens, including a year ago. Uh, where there was, a, I think, a murder of a, a school teacher uh, by an immigrant. So the Irish people, I think, have had a belly full of it. But you're seeing this is this is across the West, and it started with a mass uh, immigration in the 60s and 70s, but really been picked up since the Syrian civil war and what the Germans did back in 2014. If a government makes it a crime to criticize that government's policies, then it's not by definition a free country, is it? Uh, I think you're absolutely correct, and I think you're seeing that here in the United States. I mean, as you know, I mean, you're, you're hounded all the time. If you have a different opinion from the state, right, they're trying to criminalize that, and they're doing that, trying to do that every day here in the United States. It's one of the reasons that if they can't criminalize it to actually use the courts and the uh, police state like the FBI to come after you, they'll ba- basically partner with big tech to either deplatform you or to other you. Uh, we're seeing this here in the United States. It, and this is just about the situation of the problem. Think about the solution. I keep telling people, hey, think downrange to 2025. If we're able to win and close in that win, think of the issues we have to deal with, not just in the budget, but with the deportations. I mean, we have 9 million or 8 or 9 million here today just on Biden's watch. Center for Immigration Studies says we're going to have another 6 million by the time we get to the election next year. That's 14 or 15 million I think illegal alien invaders are coming because they've gamed the asylum system. My belief is those people have to go home. They have to be returned. They have to leave our country or we're not going to have a country. Uh, it's going to get 10 times worse. And so I hope people that watch your show appreciate the fact, uh, particularly maybe people that are not that political, that we're going to have and not just turbulence. We're going to have a firestorm in this country that is going to pale in comparison, I think, to what you saw in Ireland last week. John Kerry, um, member of the secret society of Yale, known as Skull and Bones, also a failed presidential candidate, and probably a sadistic pedophile, some people have said that, uh, is now the climate czar for the United States. And he came out, I think it was this week or last, and he did a speech, and he was talking about how agriculture contributes a lot to global warming, and that we have to deal with it. Now, how do you deal with agriculture? You stop growing stuff? I mean, I don't understand. Uh, but he goes on to say, and he uses this twisted logic that uh, by mid-century, if we don't do anything about agriculture, we may see a half of a degree in warming. Big deal, right? It's, uh, so let's starve everybody so we can save a half a degree, if that's even true. Who knows? Then he goes on to state that, that uh, if we don't do something about agriculture— uh, 600,000 more people won't have enough food. Uh, what? What are you saying? I mean, by cutting back on agriculture, that will help the food situation. Uh, listen to his twisted logic. Agriculture contributes about 33% of all the emissions of the world, uh, depending a little bit on how you count it, but it's anywhere from 26 to 33. And we can't get to net zero. We don't get this job done unless agriculture 
is front and center as part of the solution. But with a growing population on the planet, we just crossed the threshold of 8 billion fellow citizens around the world. We just crossed that in this last year. Emissions from the food system alone are projected to cause another half a degree of warming by mid-century on the current course that we are today. A two-degree future could result in an additional 600 million people not getting enough to eat. And you just can't continue to both warm the planet while also expecting to feed it. I think you have to be insanely stupid to be in government anywhere these days. I mean, I think that's the only qualification is that you're a stupid, you're illogical, uh, and uh, that makes you qualified to be uh, United States climate czar. Yeah, we're going to deal with agriculture. We're going to stop growing food. Uh, that's great for humanity. These people are nuts. I'm telling you, they're, they're absolutely nuts. And the United Nations is getting in on the party. Uh, they want Western nations to reduce meat consumption. An agency within the United Nations is expected to unveil a roadmap during the COP28 climate summit in Dubai, which will recommend that nations which overconsume meat must limit their consumption in order to reduce greenhouse emissions. Uh, yeah, right. Okay, so we, we can't plant food uh, and we can't grow food. Uh, how are we supposed to get our food? And all these people in the UN, all these elites, they're eating filet mignon and lamb and everything else. Don't, don't, again, it's, it's good for you, but not for them, right? These people are too much. Farmers should try to reduce emissions, um, produce from food waste and the use of fertilizer. Okay, no fertilizer now. And uh, Rep. Glenn Thompson, of course, a Republican from Pennsylvania. You can't have a Democrat say anything that makes any common sense or is rational in any way. It's always got to be Republican. He goes on to say, America's farmers and ranchers are climate heroes, reducing emissions while providing abundant and affordable food, fiber, and fuel. And uh, U.S. agriculture has done a lot to reduce emissions. We're one of the cleanest producers of food in the world. He goes on to say, regulating producers out of business in the U.S. will not effectively adjust, address global climate change, but export production to foreign countries with hostile regimes and worse emission profiles while harming food security and affordability. Simply put, the world needs American farmers and ranchers more than the U.N. And again, that, that goes hand in hand with uh, John Kerry going around saying that uh, uh, agricultural emissions have to be reduced. Or, or, or we won't have enough food. Insanity. Insanity. We live in an insane world. Speaking of insanity, let's move into the, the trans world again. Uh, you can't get away from it. A transgender TikToker gushed about studying the Quran, claiming that Allah was beyond gender. The clip, which went viral on um, Twitter, they call it X now, features an effeminate biological male wearing makeup, and sporting a thin mustache, talking about how excited he is having just started reading the Quran. Well, the they-them then explains how he started studying the book after seeing posts about it on social media and teaching materials for both Muslims and non-Muslims. So, uh, again, insanity, uh, Allah is uh, beyond gender. And I am... 
Just started reading the Quran and I am so excited about it. People thought when I first asked that I just wanted to read it out of curiosity, but I want to read it to study it. I started following somebody on social media that teaches the Quran and hosts a Quran book club for Muslims and non-Muslims. So I'm really excited to start going to that. She was describing the chapter of the bee and that just blew my mind. Like the way that she describes things, the way that the Quran describes things actually makes sense to me. And also, did you know that Allah is beyond gender? Did you know that actually scholars believe that there are two Qurans, the Quran of nature and the Quran, the actual book. And did you know that each chapter is named after a natural phenomenon? I just, I don't know. This whole book is just blowing my mind and I am so excited. I got sticky notes so that I could mark out things that I was, ex that I was drawn to. And uh, I'm not even through the first chapter and <laughs> I already have a bunch of sticky notes. I'm definitely going to have to buy more tabs. I'm honestly having a whole revolution with myself where the way that I describe the universe and the things that I believe in are actually described in the Quran of believing in Allah. And I, I've never thought that I believed in God before. And now I'm really having a revolution of self of, I think I actually believe in God. If you've been curious, I really recommend it. There are a lot of people who are converting. There's a lot of people who are reading it. I'm not saying I'm going to convert. I'm not saying that I wouldn't. Um, and I don't know. I just, I know that this is exactly what I need right now. I just wanted to say thank you and just point out how excited I am. All right, let me be clear about something. I, I'm not disparaging the Quran. I believe it's a holy book. That's not the purpose of that. The purpose of that, it was to illustrate the insanity of people in the trans movement. Uh, you're missing it if you don't really actually see the video and see the person that we're dealing with here. Uh, but these people are insane. Uh, they grasp for anything. Like I said, I, I don't disparage the, the Quran. I have Muslim friends and everything. I, that's not the point of this at all. And I don't want people to take it the wrong way. Uh, if you want to convert to Islam, that, that's your business. I, I really don't care. Um, but I'm trying to illustrate the insanity of these, this trans movement that's going on. That person, this is a guy who looks like, a, he's trying to look like a girl, but it's pretty impossible. You have to be pretty. Uh, and and uh, his, mind is, his mind is so screwed up uh, that he's thinking about becoming a Muslim because Allah is... Uh, non-gender or non-gender bias or whatever he said. Again, more insanity. Um, uh, I can't believe how insane the world is. I really can't. I mean, really, uh, the, the demons of hell have been unleashed on the world. And I truly believe that. I truly believe we're, we're fighting a battle of good versus evil and evil's winning. Even won't, uh, evil won't win in the end. God will win. I am sure of that. But right now, we're, we're in the middle of the battle, and it's pervasive. Uh, you can't explain how people are, are acting and the things that they believe in now. That Could you imagine, if you're 60 years old, could you imagine your grandparents, what they would think about what's going on in society right now? What's going on in government, censorship, and weaponization of, of, of the FBI? Could, you, could your parents or grandparents ever fathom it? That this is where we are in 2023. Uh, an insane world that's getting insaner by the day. Uh, they certainly wouldn't believe it. And they'd be uh, incredibly upset about it, I'm sure. What's happened to America, what's happening to the world. Uh, the perversions, uh, the, the, the loss of um, patriotism and values. Uh, it's just amazing how, and how quickly it, is, it, it happened. It happened through the indoctrination of the, the educational system. And it took a long time, and they knew it would take a long time. But they were very patient. 
and now we're at the, the tipping point. And unless this craziness stops soon, uh, uh, we're doomed. We're doomed as a, as, as, as a country. We're doomed as uh, a species. And it's got to change soon. If you recall, earlier this year, uh, whistleblowers came out and they were talking about the government's um, UFO program, where they have apparently vehicles, bodies of aliens, and there's an act in Congress to try to get transparency, to get the government to tell us what's going on. Everybody's seen, well, not everybody, but a lot of people have seen these, they call them UAPs now, they used to be called UFOs. You know, unidentified aerial phenomenon. Who was the committee that got together to change the name? I guess they felt UFOs was too too intense. I don't know. But since I was a kid, I was always into the UFO phenomenon. I've read almost every book on it you could imagine, on abductions and everything else. Uh, and I'm a big believer that they're here. They've been here for a long time. They're influencing us uh, in who knows, positives or negative ways. Some people call them demons, actually, fallen angels, what have you. I don't know what they are. I don't know if they're benevolent or, or malevolent. I don't know. But Tucker Carlson had on um, uh, uh, Congressman Burchett, and they were talking about this act of Congress to, to, to find out more about this and, 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 and fess up and be transparent with the American people. Earlier this year, Congress passed something called the UAP Disclosure Act of 2023. The law requires the U.S. government to tell the public what it knows about the countless unidentified flying objects that have been spotted in the skies above Earth over the past 3,000 years. It's designed to be, and it very well could be, a transformative piece of legislation. And it comes at a time when we can finally say with confidence that the most unlikely-sounding theories about UFOs are actually true. Yes, these things are real. They're not all weather balloons. They're not experimental aircraft from this or any other country. Whatever they are, they are not of human origin, nor do they behave according to the laws of known physics. And yes, the U.S. government currently has physical evidence that they exist. That means wreckage of the craft as well as the bodies of the beings that flew them. Amazingly, all of this is true. We know that from the detailed testimony, much of it under oath, from several high-level whistleblowers, including longtime intel officers Lou Elizondo and Dave Grush, both of whom we've talked to. But there have been many, about 10 so far. So the question is, now that the UAP Disclosure Act has passed, when can the rest of us see the information that we paid for and in fact own? Well, not so fast, it turns out. One of the great secrets of Washington, known to everyone inside Washington, is that many of the most powerful members of Congress do not work for their constituents, much less for the rest of us, for the country at large. They are instead puppets of the most secretive federal agencies. They are controlled effectively by the permanent bureaucracy, including through bribery and blackmail. Two such members happen to be especially powerful this term. They are Congressman Mike Rogers of Alabama, who is the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, and Congressman Mike Turner of Ohio, who is chairman of the House Intel Committee. Both of these men have been instructed to violate, in letter and in spirit, federal law, and to hide the truth about UFOs from the American public. They're working to do that right now. It is infuriating to watch this. But if you think about it for a second, it's also baffling. Why is this happening? Federal agencies have been lying about UFOs for more than 80 years. 
This has been a coordinated effort. It is both highly time-consuming and very expensive. Many Americans have been hurt in the process. But why? What's the point of this? Would it be a lot easier just to release the facts? Now, the conventional explanation for why they haven't been released is that the U.S. government is lying about UFOs because the truth about UFOs is too scary to reveal, that they're real, and our leaders wouldn't want to panic the population. But that's not true. In fact, it's ridiculous. Wouldn't want to terrify the population? Terrifying the population is what our government does best and most avidly. Officials regularly gin up irrational fears about COVID or white supremacy or Vladimir Putin or a dozen other topics as part of a pretty obvious control strategy. It's not like these people mind it scaring you. They want to scare you, and they do it every day. So why would they lie about UFOs? Well, because they're covering up a crime, obviously, and it's their crime. Someday we'll discover what that crime is. But in the meantime, here are a few questions that honest lawmakers ought to be asking. Have government agencies used tax dollars to procure advanced non-human technology? If they have, where exactly is that technology now? Has it been used for profit? How exactly has the American public benefited from that technology? And then this question, the most pressing of all. Has the U.S. government communicated directly with the beings that piloted these craft? Have American officials ever entered into any sort of agreement with them? And if so, what are the terms of that agreement? These are not random questions. They are informed questions. And at this point, Americans have a moral right to know the answers. One member of Congress who might be willing to ask those questions is Congressman Tim Burchett. He's a Republican from Knoxville. Burchett is one of the very few lawmakers in Washington who seems genuinely outraged by the cover-up in progress. Here he is the other day responding to it. And I was told by leadership that it was blocked by the intelligence community, not the intelligence committee, but the intelligence community. And that is a very chilling effect. If you, if you reach, someone can reach through the veil of government and pierce it to the point of we do not have access to something, you got to start asking yourself who the hell's in control. And, and I think it'd be wise for you all to start looking at some financial disclosures of some of those corporations, some of the people who do the stonewalling in this town. Now, I want you to think about this. Think about this, that something with the capabilities of traveling light years, not showing uh, a heat signature, and the energy capabilities of that, that would put the Pentagon out of business. We wouldn't be fighting these worthless wars overseas over oil, and American boys and girls wouldn't be dying. It would put the war pigs out of business, and they'd have to go somewhere else, and I'm all for that. Congressman Tim Burchett of Tennessee joins us now. Congressman, thanks so much for coming on. So I think a lot of that clip speaks for itself, but you, you are saying effectively, as I hear you, if unelected bureaucrats and defense contractors can shut down a federal law, then it's not really a democracy, then is it? No, it's not. And you're correct. They have been able to do that through their power and influence. Well, I'm really struck. Um, there is some pushback against this. I, th- I think you've been the most visible and by far the most articulate. But there are some people who are bothered by this, but I've heard almost no discussion about why it's happening in the first place. Why the effort, the enormous effort to suborn the members of Congress, the committee chairman I mentioned, and the new Speaker of the House, and the Senate Majority Leader, uh, Minority Leader rather, um, why? Why go to the effort to hide information that most Americans think they already know and have accepted? I think it's power, influence, corruption, 
money, all the things, you know, that run Washington. Our Pentagon just recently um, failed their sixth audit in a row. Um, they, they publicly disclosed that over half their assets are unaccounted for. Now, those assets are, you know, their automobiles, their firearms, their, I guess, personnel, everything. 50%. Could you imagine uh, anything else? And yet we've rewarded them with billions more this year for their incredible effort. And, they, and they're bragging about how well they're doing now. Um, and so you figure you know, a compartmentalized department like the Pentagon um, who has these untold billion-dollar contracts with our defense contractors who want us in every dadgum war, who want us in Ukraine, who want us in everything, everywhere in the world, and, um, and, and because they'll be selling more missile defense systems and things like that. You, you imagine that those, there's probably, I would say, a half a dozen of those top-level contractors and uh, these corporations, multinational, and then we fund them, and we don't know where the money's going, and yet there's cost overruns, and we keep rewarding them with more. So obviously, if they were in, in possession of some of this material or a, a craft or what have you, um, the reverse engineering possibilities would be unlimited. And, and they don't want to, you know, they, they just, they can control the ebbs and flows of technology, and they're on the cutting edge of it, and they don't want us out of war because if, and imagine too, as I've stated before, if you had this energy source that didn't show a heat trail that could heat yes. our homes, cool our homes in the summer, heat our homes in the winter, I mean, we'd be out of, the Pentagon will be out of business. I like call I think I call them war pigs, but I meant to say war pimps, I believe is the, the appropriate term. So that's it. Um, they don't want us to know. They haven't wanted us to know anything about the UFO phenomenon for what, 60, 70 years. Uh, and they don't want us to know now. And they're going to give us a little bit, um, and uh, the intelligence community will put out this information. Uh, they just not, they just don't want it out, and it's obvious from that. And you have uh, certain members of Congress, uh, high-level senators, who uh, have been compromised in some way, and uh, are going to are going to hold it all up. All right, before we go, let's do one more Tucker Carlson piece. Uh, Tucker Carlson, for the first time ever this week, endorsed a political candidate. That's what he says anyway, and he's endorsed President Trump. Well, that's not the important part. The important part is the reasoning he has for endorsing a candidate for the first time. Have a listen. I mean, I've always agreed with Trump's policies, always. And I lost friends over it. Um, but, and I've never really actively supported anybody because it's not my job to actively support people. I watch, you know, I like to watch. Um, but I'm a voyeur. Yeah. <laughs> but I became an active Trump supporter when they raided Mar-a-Lago last summer, the summer of 2022. That, that, that's, that can't stand. No, that can't. And that's I ag agree with Trump on a lot. But even if I disagreed with Trump on a lot, I'd still be a Trump supporter because you cannot allow that. You cannot allow the, you know, the regime, the president of the United States to use the Justice Department to knock the front runner out of the race. You can't do that. No, you can't do that. So it's bigger than Trump. It's bigger than Biden. It's a question of, you know, do you want to live in a free country with a functioning justice system? You know, that's exactly. And right. so I'm voting for Trump. And if they convict him, I will send him the max donations and I will lead protests. That's how I feel. That's how I feel. Because and by the way, if I thought that he had committed some real crime, I wouldn't feel that way. But he didn't. He and Biden are both found with classified documents at home, along with every other former high level federal official in history. But only Trump is indicted. Like, tell me how that works. Oh, shut up. 
And and Biden is the one who did it illegally because he was never president when he did it. Do you think Dick Cheney brought home any like classified Iraq war documents and showed them to his wife in 2003? Yes is the answer. All right, that was Tucker Carlson on uh, Roseanne Barr's podcast. If the female voice sounded familiar, that's who it is. All right, that's the end of our weekly podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Tell your friends about the program. If you want to get in touch with me, send me an email at lou at thefinancialphysician.com. Lou at thefinancialphysician.com. Want to come to my office and sit down with me for a financial consultation? No obligation, no cost to you. Just call my office at 732-905-8100, 732-905-8100. Make sure to join me next week for the next edition of The Financial Physician. And never forget, I'm not far right. I'm just right so far. Have a good week.